Welcome to the Cumberland River Compact's River Talks podcast. In each episode of River Talks, we explore a new topic related to the health, enjoyment, and stewardship of the Cumberland River Basin's water, people, and special places. We sit down with experts, artists, researchers, professionals, and more to share their knowledge and experiences. I'm Katherine Price, and I'll be your River Talks host. Be sure to subscribe to River Talks to be notified of every new episode, and don't forget to rate and review our podcast. You may have never heard of PFAS, but this emerging contaminant is getting more and more attention. Although it's considered emerging, it's actually a chemical pollutant that has been around for decades and remains in the environment as a forever chemical. Research now links PFAS to many health issues, and the public discourse around PFAS is increasing. Policies for PFAS regulation are becoming increasingly prevalent at the state level, while the federal government is developing its own framework for action. In this River Talk, we are joined by Aaron Kanzig, who is the River Program's Policy and Research Associate at River Network and based in Detroit, Michigan. River Network is a national nonprofit that empowers and unites people and communities to protect and restore rivers and other waters that sustain all life. In this conversation, Aaron helps us navigate the current PFAS landscape, including regulations, health advisories, and federal funding. Well, Aaron, thank you so much for joining us today on River Talks. We are excited to have this important conversation about PFAS. So let's just start with some of the basics. What is PFAS and why is it so important? Yeah, so PFAS is an abbreviation for a long clunky word, Uh, and I don't even know if I will say it right, but it's per and polyfluoroalkyl substances. There are thousands of these human-made chemicals. They're also often referred to as forever chemicals because they don't break down easily and can accumulate over time. And they have been around since the 1930s, and we keep on making them. Um, So there's more and more of them in our environment um, as time goes on, and they can contaminate drinking water along with air, food, and soil. And so how do they get to all those places? Um, Through a lot of different ways. They're sprayed onto agricultural fields through biosolids. They're coated in food packaging. Uh, They coat garments and other textiles um, to be like anti- oil or water resistant. In terms of like storage, they don't break down over time. So if they're put into landfills and things like that, they can leach into uh, groundwater um, through landfills. And they're also common in military bases, airports and manufacturing sites. Um, They're in firefighting foam and other products that are used in those kind of places. Yeah, and I think what's interesting about PFAS is I talked with somebody about it before and they kind of compared it to a lot of the traditional non-source point pollutions that we talk about, like sediment and you know nutrients and things like that, because they're coming from all of these places. And I thought that was an interesting comparison when we're starting to think about these more emerging contaminants and how do we sort of apply um, approaches that might be really familiar to us in, a, in dealing with water quality to something new. And yes, there are health implications to PFAS. So why is it so important that we have all of this PFAS, unfortunately, in our environment What are we seeing with the impacts on humans? Yeah, and I should also preface this by saying I'm I'm not a scientist, so um, I can't speak to like the biological level of what those impacts are. But 
Um, they really do run the gamut from like kidney, prostate, and testicular cancer to endoc endocrine disruption, uh, weakened immune systems, and decreased fertility. Women can pass through uh, PFAS in through their breast milk to, to their babies. And so they're continuing to study the effects of PFAS on, on human health, but um, overall the consensus is they're not great. Um, so yeah, and then testing for and remediating PFAS, of course, is really expensive. And so figuring out how to address this as a public health issue is gonna be a big undertaking. Yeah, that, well, let's definitely get back to kind of what's the next step for remediation. But when you said, you know, PFAS and these PFAS chemicals have been around since the 1930s or 40s, and it's kind of just now that we're starting to hear about them more and the, not just people in the water industry, but people in the general public, if it's been around for so long, why are we just starting to see and hear and have more attention towards this? Yeah, well, unfortunately, like in other situations uh, through the course of history, the companies that have made these chemicals have known that they aren't great and have, uh, in some cases, covered up the impacts or not been straightforward about reporting the impacts. And so I think that a big reason why we're seeing more and more of it now is because it really hasn't been studied extensively until recent years. Um, and again, there's there was originally some of them, and then they're like, oh well, we'll we know those ones are bad, so we'll replace them with other ones. But before really doing any analysis on what those new chemicals, what those impacts would be, and so we're kind of playing a lot of catch up right now. I think in terms of figuring out which ones are the bad ones, to put it eloquently. <laughs> yes, and like you said, these they're forever chemicals. So even if we stop using it or say we're going to use something different, it doesn't take away the fact that that harmful chemical was used for 10, 20, 30, 40 plus years, and then maybe something you know harmful in a different way is introduced, but we're still sort of left with the legacy of that. So you're right. I think there's a lot of um, attention that has been played towards some of the larger companies that may have, you know, had had a lot of deception in the use of these PFAS chemicals and the implications. Um, and there's been, you know, also I think some effort at the national level to start to look at how do we create policy and regulations around PFAS. So, what is that looking like now, and how has that changed through time as we've understood more about PFAS? Yeah, so we use the term emerging contaminant because these are all um, not fully understood. And so they're being researched both by the Environmental Protection Agency, but also the National Institute of Health and potentially other agencies um, that are all trying to figure out what the public health impacts are and figure out what kind of regulations would be most effective and needed. So yeah, there's, there's over 9,000 different types of PFAS and we've really only studied a handful of those. And so in terms of figuring out what kind of regulation needs to be done, we're currently treating each one as, you'd need to like regulate each individual one of those thousands. Um, and so that would be a very, very slow process over time. And there is urgency in terms of addressing the impact. So I think that, there is momentum growing, but so far the federal government has been pretty slow in um, coming up with any sort of 
standards or regulations that have that have to be met. They've been providing some guidelines, um, but those aren't enforceable. There's this really interesting kind of cat and mouse game that I hear about a lot with science and policy. Like the science is doing something and the policy is behind it, or the policy is trying to be at the forefront so the science catches up. And I think this is a good example where you really need both of those to be working in tandem because it's such an urgent issue. And you mentioned a little bit about how there are some you know, kind of guidelines, advisories that are coming out. And so I know the EPA recently released some new health advisories for PFAS, and that was pretty prominent in the news because it it took that sort of acceptable level and lowered it a lot. What does that mean for policy? Is that going to allow us to make any changes or action on PFAS? Um, yeah, so uh, just earlier this year, EPA issued four different um, health advisory. Two of them were lifetime drinking water health advisory levels for, um, I don't know if you pronounce them as PFOA and PFOS, or if you run them, run the letters together or not. <laughs> um, but essentially, they drastically lowered those from their previous suggested um, levels. Um, for PFOA, it's all the way down to 0 0.004 parts per trillion and 0.02 parts per trillion for PFOS. And just as an analogy for like, what is even one part per trillion, that's like one drop in 20 filled Olympic size swimming pools. So it's a really tiny amount they're saying can have an impact um, on our health. So just to keep that context of what, what a part per trillion is. And then they also issued uh, new final health advisories for what are called Gen X chemicals at 10 parts per trillion and PFBS, which is at 2000 parts per trillion. And so the health advisories are non-enforceable and non-regulatory, but are meant to indicate levels at which containments can cause negative human health effects. And they're specifically thinking about like sensitive populations. So older people, people with compromised immune systems and, and younger children are typically in those categories of vulnerable population. So trying to create like a buffer uh, to indicate what's safe um, to have in our drinking water. And we can't even really currently test for that small of an amount, which is another tricky thing to deal with. This is all fitting into like a broader framework that EPA has outlined. They published um, a, a roadmap for their actions on PFAS that is focusing on 2021 through 2024. So figuring out um, what these different health advisories should be um, in tandem with some other actions such as holding polluters accountable and getting upstream of the problem. So essentially like we should probably stop producing some of these uh, chemicals so that we're not continually having to uh, address them. And then like you were saying about um, using some of the same tactics with non-point um, source pollution, figuring out like different permitting systems um, for PFAS. So we have this such a low level that it's like the science we don't even have to really detect it at these four or 10 parts per trillion. When a drinking water treatment plant is looking at this new health advisory and saying, well, I know it's not regulatory. I know it's not enforceable, but you know, we're trying to provide the cleanest water we can. Are there even tools and techniques that are available to remediate against PFAS at sort of a treatment level at those treatment plants? Yeah, there is. And 
I'm not an expert on this, but there are a couple of different ways we can do it through granulated activated carbon as well as reverse osmosis. Those are two practices that could be used to um, filter or remove PFAS from drinking water. Um, there's also the option potentially of simply completely finding a new source for your drinking water. So some uh, water systems are going that route. Um, and I just read an interesting thing in Colorado in response to these health advisories. Uh, there is a water system there that is buying water from Denver to dilute their current uh, water source to get it down to the right level. So they're like infusing <laughs> cleaner water into their system, which I don't know what the implications of that are in terms of thinking about water scarcity and availability as well, especially in uh, the arid West. I just thought that was an interesting thing that they were, they were as a short-term solution. They were trying to get those levels down by adding in cleaner water. Wow, that is really interesting because you can start to see how all these issues intersect. We can't just talk about PFAS or pollution and not consider water scarcity when we have this big you know, interbasin transfer of water in order to dilute it to address something. And what is the implication for that? We know it maybe is a short-term solution, but what is the implication for that 10, 15 years, 20 years down the road? And when we look at our water treatment and our water infrastructure, you know, there's this now push to, we need to look at how we can begin to remediate if these advisories do become enforceable. But we also know there's a huge gap in our water infrastructure already. And we have in Tennessee about a $15 billion price tag to work on our water infrastructure. And there is some money that's coming through, specifically through the American Rescue Plan, and um, hopefully through the bipartisan infrastructure bill as well, that will start to address water infrastructure, but it will only be, it was 1.5 billion in Tennessee, so still a small percentage of what we need. But is there efforts with these, this money at a federal level that can address uh, PFAS? Luckily, there is some good news around that. Although, as you're saying, it is not enough funding. We need to have sustained funding over time. We can't just have a one-time commitment by Congress, but needs to be in, a, in the annual appropriations, specifically through like the drinking water and clean water state revolving funds. There's, yeah, sort of two big bills that were passed that are putting money towards this. One is the American Rescue Plan Act, which allowed a lot of, um, a lot of different eligible product, projects through the coronavirus state and local fiscal recovery funds to states, tribes, and territories. Um, and so that included water infrastructure money. So according, I think, to the National Conference of State Legislators, 31 states have used their ARPA funds for water infrastructure projects. And that can include efforts to um, address PFAS and other emerging contaminants. I don't have details uh, myself on like how much money is going directly to that, but it's definitely something that states can be um, giving that money for. So that's, that's uh, some good news on that front. And then even more significantly, the bipartisan infrastructure law, which was passed last November, um, also called the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, appropriated around um, $50 billion for water and wastewater infrastructure projects. And those will be happening over the next five years that funding will be distributed from 2022 
2026. And those are mostly through the Clean Water and Drinking Water State Revolving Funds, or SRFs. And this is the first time that um, there's specific, a specific pot of money in the Clean Water SRF for emerging contaminants. I think it's a total of $1 billion um, over the course of the next five years. Um, and with the Drinking Water SRF, uh, it's $4 billion for emerging contaminants. And beyond the state revolving funds, which I'm happy to talk in more detail on, there is also a grant program through the bipartisan infrastructure law um, called the Small and Disadvantaged Community Grant Program. And that's gonna be giving out $1 billion each year for the next five years um, for emerging contaminants. And so that's purely grant money. There's no loans involved. Um, so altogether through uh, the bipartisan infrastructure law, $10 billion is gonna be going towards emerging contaminants, which is a lot of money. That is, it's good to, it's good to hear <laughs> some good news and some funding going towards these issues. And even though we know it is, there's still a lot to be done even after we have $10 billion going towards these, these projects. And like you said, there's all of this happening at the federal level. There's a lot of money coming federally, but then the rubber really hits the road when we look at the states, because the states then administer those funds and get those out to utility districts and make sure that that money is being used. So what states have policies around PFAS? What does it look like at the state level? Yeah, so as we were saying before, the federal government response has been pretty sluggish in terms of setting um, strict regulations on PFAS in drinking water um, and in other aspects of our life, right? Like there's PFAS in, in food packaging and things like that. So states are taking action on a, a variety of solutions to addressing PFAS. Um, and it's happening at an increasing rate. Like I can't even keep track of all the legislation that is happening across the country, um, which is a, a good sign. Um, and there is also like a lot of bipartisan support for this kind of legislation, I would say. And so some of the things that states are doing is they are setting uh, drinking water limits and establishing maximum contaminant levels um, for generally for specific um, PFAS like PFOA and PFOS. And they tend to be stricter than um, the current health advisories that EPA has, um, or they have the ability to um, move according to how, the, like as science, as more science is available, they'll be able to adjust their um, maximum contamination levels. Some states have established guidelines or health advisories similar to the EPA, um, but with, again, variation in stringency. Um, but there are states that have enforceable drinking water standards, and those include Michigan, New York, New Jersey, Vermont, New Hampshire, Massachusetts, and Maine. And again, I might be missing some because uh, they might have even happened like in the recent months. So um, sort of clustered in the Northeast and then uh, a little bit in the, in the Midwest. Um, but more action is taking place in other states as well. Um, and I'll plug one resource that's really good to check out is called Safer States. They track legislative and regulatory actions um, on a whole bunch of different chemical um, pollutants, including PFAS. So they're, they're tracking current legislation and then also what states have already done. 
Um, so I'll share that link with you too. It's good to hear that maybe the state action is ahead of the federal in some ways and sort of pushing back up at that federal level and really trying to drive change that way. And that in some ways it may be happening so fast, it's even hard to keep track when you've got 50 different states looking at 50 different types of regulations. And one of the states I know that you did a deep dive into for River Network was New Hampshire that you mentioned. So talk to me about what was happening in New Hampshire. What, how did that policy come into play? Yeah, um, so I'll say that I, I did this research as part of River Network's State Policy Hub, which features a variety of state-level policies across drinking water issues, including PFAS, um, but as well as policies on like open water data, environmental justice, and um, bolstering Clean Water Act protections, and we're continuing to expand that. So we want to provide a resource for folks that can see what other states are doing. It includes uh, language directly from those, those successful um, pieces of legislation, as well as interviews with advocates, kind of digging into like, what are the ingredients for success if you want to try to do this in your state as well. Um, and so one of the states that I looked at was New Hampshire. Um, and New Hampshire uh, has had a pretty volatile history with uh, different chemical co uh, companies polluting their land and waterways, um, including you know big, big companies like DuPont, 3M. So yeah, they have been manufacturing and using PFAS extensively for several decades in New Hampshire. And back in 2016, it was revealed that high levels of PFAS were detected in hundreds of drinking water wells um, in the state. And uh, in 2017, legislation was introduced to direct the Department of Environmental Services to adopt um, state drinking water standards. Um, that I think did not initially pass, but there's been since then uh, increasing efforts um, by advocates that are being contaminated, like their own communities and households are experiencing the effects of this um, to pass um, different types of policies to address PFAS, both in terms of holding polluters accountable and making them pay for the cleanup, pay for building out new uh, sources of safe drinking water, getting their blood tested, there's a, a big need to understand like the extent of, of exposure. And then, um, yeah, just maintaining safe, clean drinking water. Um, and so over the course of the past several years, there's been different legislation passed in 2018, Senate Bill 309 passed, which directed the Department of Environmental Services to set maximum contaminant li limits for public drinking water. As that rulemaking, uh, progressed. The, there was a lot of advocacy around making sure that they were really um, protective of public health. People were really engaged in the public commenting period, but in the midst of that, a judge halted enforcement of the standards that were kind of like in place while they were finalizing the, the final regulations because 3M had sued the state um, kind of over this like nonsensical uh, complaint that there hadn't been like a cost benefit analysis properly done. And so that kind of jammed up the process. And then the New Hampshire legislature kind of circumvented all of that by just making those standards part of a law in 2020. 
Um, and so it immediately went into effect. But of course, there's lots, still lots of contention and there's different lawsuits that are happening there um, I, between these companies as well as um, class action lawsuits against them. So it's kind of a hot mess. Um, but in the midst of all that, there's continuing to be a lot of advocacy work done and the, um, the state being really responsive, I think, to, to hearing those demands. Um, this year, there was a bill that was introduced that would prohibit the sale of products containing intentionally added PFAS, which actually is something that just passed also in Maine. And I believe in Colorado, a similar bill is also being introduced. So states are actually saying like, you're not even going to allow the production of these um, materials um, in the future or the sell the, um, or having them be sold and distributed in their states. Um, so that one is, uh, hasn't gone past in New Hampshire, but there is there are efforts underway around that. And then one that did recently pass was the PFAS Remediation Fund, which would establish um, funding to impacted private well users uh, to be connected to safe public water systems. And I can talk about one really awesome person that I got to talk to in my research on this, if you'd like. Yes, I would love that because I love the term you used, ingredients for success, and talking about how in, engaged the community was in all of these different levels. And like you said, these bills, it's, it's, they just keep on kind of coming through. So these members of the community are so engaged. So I would love to hear about sort of the work that they've done. And I think one thing too about moving faster at the state versus federal level is like, these are representatives that have to, you know, see their constituents in the grocery store and at the library and are also potentially like being directly impacted by PFAS contamination. So I think that um, advocates at the state level are able to really kind of make those personal connections that um, kind of demystify what is what, what is this emerging contaminant and how, what does it have to do with me and why is it important because they're able to say like my neighbor has cancer I have cancer my children have cancer this is a huge deal and one of those folks that's creating a, a lot of good ruckus in New Hampshire and also nationally is Laureen Allen She's the founder of an organization called Merrimack Citizens for Clean Water. And their community found out again in, in 2016 that a, a plastics facility had been contaminating their drinking water for the past two decades. Um, and they were like, oh, this makes so much sense. We are having so many different bad health effects. And it seemed like such a strange cluster of people that are falling ill. Um, and finding out that they actually had just been drinking water that was really not safe for consumption for uh, 20 plus years. So she um, is a social worker. She's not, a, and she, I think, has a lot of values of, of caring for the environment and caring for public health, but it's not her background at all. She um, started to just do her own research on PFAS and talking to her neighbors, showing up at town hall meetings, and pretty soon was like, we need to have some real action on this. And so she is a mover and shaker who has been advocating for um, all these different sorts of um, policy measures at the state level. And then she also is one of the original founders of the National PFAS Contamination Coalition. So at a national level, she's also working on making sure that we're moving forward to test, monitor, regulate, and end source pollution. 
of PFOS. So she has a lot of wisdom to share and I love being able to hear her story and how she's inspired other people. If you search her on the internet, she's like PFOS famous. <laughs> um, and she's just so, she has, she's so much passion for it that it's like very contagious. PFOS famous, that is a new tagline for what we can all aim to be in addressing this issue. We want to go out there and be those advocates. And like you said, this is something that, you know, water impacts everybody. And so when you have a water pollution issue that has such a direct implication for human health, it's, you know, those, those advocates can come from a lot of different places. And like you said, she doesn't have a traditional environmental background, but she is a great an effective advocate. And I think there's a lot of wisdom that we can learn from her and others. So thinking about PFAS, we kind of have this long-term, we know there's money coming from the federal government. We know there's policy happening. We hope that the science and policy kind of keep up with each other. But in the meantime, you know, what can we be doing to protect ourselves from PFAS? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think uh, one of the first things you can do is figure out if your water utility is testing for PFAS and uh, calling them up and asking them what the results are if they have and if they have not, encouraging them to. Um, the, through the drinking water state revolving fund set aside money, which I don't want to get too wonky into that, but like they can uh, get funding to test and monitor uh, to figure out if like what the extent uh, of the problem is, if there is any. Um, and so there's really no excuse for water utilities to not know uh, what's going on. And so if there are levels of PFAS in your drinking water, uh, yeah, there is. Uh, there are filters that you could install in terms of just being practically and immediately trying to take action to, to lower your risk. That would be like a first step. And then again, like encouraging your, your water utility to um, tap into the funding that is available by um, applying for state revolving funds to um, figure out best ways to, to make the water system safe. And then again, we're gonna keep having to endure pollution if we keep creating PFAS. And so I think thinking about um, both at the state level, um, like the example from Maine of having legislation that's saying we're going to be phasing out the production and, and selling of products that contain PFAS. That's an important thing to do at the state level as well as, as well as federal. And I guess in terms of just personal safety too, understanding where else you might be interacting with PFAS. So uh, whether it's through, you know, the popcorn lining of a popcorn bag or um, the pan that you, you know, fry your eggs in in the morning, Unfortunately, there's a lot of ways in which we might be consuming PFAS without realizing it. So there's lots of resources out there to, to, to learn about where you might be able to, to reduce your risk. We are big popcorn eaters at our office. So you saying that example got us probably running to our cabinets to check all of our popcorn bag liners. But I've seen a great resource and I'll make sure it's shared in our blog about where you can kind of look at different products and companies that have whether or not they're phasing out PFAS or kind of their products and whether or not it does or doesn't have it in there. So you can start to look at some of the, the products that you have and also understanding if you, you know, if you have a product trying to get as much life out of it in a safe way as you can, because we also know sending that product to a landfill, like you mentioned at the beginning, could still contribute to PFAS and groundwater and drinking water. So then figuring out how do we dispose of these items that might be contaminated. 
Well, Aaron, thank you so much for joining us on River Talks today. I learned a lot. PFAS is something that I've had my eye on. Like you said, it's we're seeing it more and more, trying to learn as much about it. It's a complicated issue. It's a complicated scientific issue, and it's a complicated policy issue. So I really appreciate you taking the time to walk us through what it is, why it's important, and to look at some of the good things that are coming up with addressing PFAS. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you to Erin Kanzig for joining us to lay the groundwork for conversations around PFAS. We recognize that we just scratched the surface of the issue, its implications, and the solutions. We also wanted to share a bit more about what's happening in Tennessee. Currently, there is no regulation for PFAS in drinking water in Tennessee. However, according to the Tennessee Department of the Environment and Conservation's website, they are, quote, taking steps, including developing an interdisciplinary working group in coordination with the Department of Health. In 2015 and 2016, TDEC sampled finished drinking water from 136 water systems and only found two to have detectable concentrations of PFAS above the minimum reporting level. Sites in Tennessee that tested high for PFAS were often associated with military bases, where a special firefighting foam that contained PFAS was used in trainings to extinguish fires. In Middle Tennessee, PFAS recently made headlines after the city of Murfreesboro sued Middle Point Landfill due to discharge that contains PFAS making its way into the nearby Stones River. This lawsuit was announced after the recording of this episode. If you'd like to learn more about the resources and links about what's happening in Tennessee, be sure to check out our blog at cumberlandrivercompact.org blog. Although PFAS is unfortunately prevalent in the environment, there are steps that we can take. First, you can work to limit your personal exposure to PFAS by purchasing products made without it. Reverse osmosis filters at home have also been shown to be effective at removing the chemical from water. Next, we need to advocate for PFAS to no longer be manufactured and put into our products. Finally, we need to invest in water treatment infrastructure that will protect our entire water system from PFAS chemicals. We look forward to sharing more about the issue of PFAS in Tennessee, its implications, and the solutions in upcoming River Talks episodes. Stay tuned for more.